The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode here on Food FM. Thank you for joining us. This week, the pursuit of a passion that led to Provence. Stephen and Jeannie Cronk gave up their busy lives in southwest London to live the dream of making their own wine. Mirabeau was a huge hit, spawning a succession of salmon pink siblings. I'll talk to both of them about how they made it all work. Plus, buying spirits. How do you choose from the dizzying array of drinks the world over? What are the current trends in the spirits world? We'll find out with a buyer's perspective from Dave Roberts. Plus, as always, a selection of medal-winning drinks from the IWSC Hall of Fame to inform your drinking choices. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Pursuing your passion to make a wine, living the dream in a summer clime, it's generally the stuff of fantasy, that vision you might have in your mind as you stare through the condensation on the window of the stationary bus. But what if you could actually make it happen? Stephen and Jeannie Crock chucked in their life in southwest London in 2009. They sold up and headed to the south of France with their three children for a new life making wine. They barely even spoke French at the time. Just over a decade later, their brand Mirabeau is a roaring success, having spawned a family of rosé wines, even a gin, with a stylish brand that's hard to miss. The wines are now sold in more than 50 different markets around the world. And I'm delighted to say Stephen and Jeannie join me now. Hello, Stephen and Jeannie. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Thanks for that lovely poetic introduction. It's great. Thank you so much. Really You're happy welcome. to be here. You're welcome. Well, Mirabeau kind of lends itself to, to poetry, I think. So take us back to 2009, first of all. Uh, Stephen, you were actually working in telecoms at the time, but you did have a background in wine, didn't you? Yes, that's right. So I, I joined the wine trade straight out of university. I was completely nuts about wine and joined a small shipper in London as the lorry driver. So I, I was doing deliveries around London and uh, during the day and then studying wine in the evening. So I did my WSET uh, exams. And once I got my what, what, what was then called higher certificate, which I think now is called level two, um, I was given a business card and told to go and start selling wine. And that was my best. That was my sales training. But yes, I've been in the wine trade um, throughout my 20s. And I even had Stephen Cronk fine wines in Wandsworth um, uh, in my mid-twenties, which was a, a bit of fun. So I think we couldn't have done this if I hadn't have had that background. Um, but when I was 30, I decided actually um, I needed to go into the corporate world and get some experience doing something else. So from the age of 30 to 45, I, I was in telecoms until until 2009. So you had a kind of boring job, I suppose, a sensible <laughs> job for a while. Uh, yeah, well, but you have to make money as well. And you don't make much money in, in wine generally, I, I suppose. Uh, Jeannie, your specialism was interior design. Did you already have the wine bug as well? Well, a, a little less than Stephen. Um, I mean, I'm actually I, came, I had a background in, in marketing and tech marketing, which is also where Stephen and I met. So, um, you know, the marketing side of it came in quite handy. And then um, after or during, uh, you know, raising my kids, I started um, to pursue my interest in interior design and, and did some courses at KLC. So but, you know, I was obviously a partner in wine, as it were, to, to Stephen. And uh, most of his bonuses tended to end up um, 
in our sort of understairs cupboard um, in our house. So, so you know, and I had the rosy bug. I would say I credit myself with the with the with the rosy part of the story. Okay, so was there a single moment then, an epiphany that made you both decide to give up what you were doing in Southwest London and uh, jack it all in and, and go to the south of France? Well, actually, there were a few epiphany moments. And the, the, the first one was that I, um, shortly after we were married um, and bought our little family home in, 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 in Richmond, I, I went um, hiking with friends of mine in the south of France. And we were hiking round a vineyard for hours, and I was uh, admiring it from afar. And they were very nosy friends. And they said, they asked me how much we'd spent on our London house. And, and I told them, and they said, Stephen, this vineyard is on the market for the same price that you've just spent on your tiny terrace house in London. And that was like a moment where I thought, oh, I'd love to get back in the wine trade. And in theory, if I could pay off the mortgage, I could buy that vineyard. And that was the first the first one. Um, and then I came back and told Jeannie that and she laughed at me and said, let's just get on with life, can we? Or, 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 or yes, try and pay off the mortgage, and then we'll make a decision later. But then, then um, you know, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is if you've got an idea like this is to talk about it with, with friends who you trust. And... and we had some friends visiting us from overseas and they were really quizzing. He's, he was in, in, he is in banking and, and he was really quizzing us on, OK, guys, when are you going to do this? And uh, we kind of, you know, we'd had a few bottles of wine, but we had in, in our, uh, we had in our kitchen at that time a blackboard you know, to write our to do lists and shopping lists and things. And he said, OK, guys, write up there the date that you think you're actually going to be in France making wine. And we did that and he took a photograph of it and he sent it to us three or four years later. Um, on that date, um, which I think was May May 16, that we said that we'd be uh, sorry, yeah, no, May May 2006, that we said we'd be living in France making wine, and he sent that photograph to us in May 2006, and he said, "Where are you guys now?" And we were still in London, and that really made me think, "Gosh, I don't want to be that person who just talks about it." You know, I really want to be the, you know, that person who, you know, if you've got a dream, you've got to go and make it happen, and that was really uh, the sort of second epiphany moment. And Jeannie, were you? fully on board all the way through this. <laughs> no. no, no, no. I had just, well, I was sort of, you know, I'd had two kids um, relatively close together. And then then we part of on that blackboard, we also marked have third child before yeah. <laughs> moved to France, which, which we duly then did. And um, and so so let's put it this way. You know, when you've got three uh, young kids, you know, well settled, lots of friends, Life was well, life was nice in Southwest London. So you know, to kind of go and pack it all up, we just moved house, you know, to a nice house. Uh, you know, it all felt relatively cozy. So so I sort of kept on sort of telling Stephen to go and lie in a in a dark room and 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 wait for this longing to go away. But eventually, you know, it was quite clear that it wasn't going to go away, and that he was actually getting more and more miserable. You know, doing what wasn't really causing much enthusiasm in his in in his world so 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 eventually um you know one thing led to another he got offered a promotion we didn't take it they said well if you're not going to take it then you might as well leave so so that's what we did you know we we we, we took redundancy and and packed up and went quite quickly after that it took only seven months for us to then sort of sell the house and and actually go but i would say that genius being the real hero in this because it was my I would say quite selfish dream to go make wine. You know, Jeannie was prepared to go along with it, but it was it was really tough for I think for for Jeannie in particular, but for the children as well to to be dragged away from their comfort zone. You know, we had a really nice bunch of friends who we were living in Teddington at that time. You know, they had 
you know, we were, they were in a really good school. The two eldest were in a really good school. And, um, and it, we did a leaving bash at, um, uh, at Hampton Court um, because I was a member of the Real Tennis Club there and, and made a speech and everyone went, oh, great, good luck. But then Josie, our, our eight-year-old, as she was then, decided to make a speech too, completely impromptu. And she had the whole bunch of people there crying their eyes out. She was like saying, I'm not quite sure why mummy and daddy are doing this, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll work out fine. I'm going to miss you terribly. I don't really know where we're going. Um, and oh. everyone was looking at us like, you, what kind of parents are you? You're so <laughs> Horrible people. And it was just the most awful moment. The, the Suddenly the realisation that, oh my gosh, you know, it's not just Stephen, it's the whole family. And we don't know where we're going. Well, we knew, we knew which village we were going to, but we really didn't know where this was going to end up. So... That, yeah, so I, I think that the courage shown by Jeannie and, and the family was was um, was was tremendous. It's a great story. It really is. And I just think about my uh, partner and I, when we have a discussion, I'm always the one coming up with the kind of harebrained schemes, the, the kind of batshit crazy stuff. Let's do this. Let's do the other. And my partner, who knows me too well, is always, no, well, that won't work because of this and that won't work because of that. And we've, we've got to think about this and all the rest of it. Are you, as a as a double act, because you always come across as, as, as so, so equally, <laughs> Mirabeau, um you're obviously a great team but is is there kind of one of you who's a bit a bit madder a bit more daring and the other who's more sort of cautious well it's the same constellation david yeah i think <laughs> I'm, I'm the sensible german and he's the crazy brit who will go out and conquer the world so so yeah, yeah if, if we were both if we were both like me this really wouldn't have worked you have to have i describe it sometimes as an acceleration or break you need both to be able to drive well, uh, and and we we both have our hands on the on the steering wheel. But no, it's a good uh, it's a combination that works quite well. Yeah, you're only going to encourage my partner now. So, what made <laughs> you um, make a rosé wine? Because it's fair to say that it was fashionable, I suppose, then, but it was nothing like as huge as a category as it is now. Yeah, I mean that really was kind of, you know, I, I had spent quite a lot of time in the south of France as as a child, and my parents were really avid rosé fans. So I had sort of grown up with rosé in my life. Um, and uh, I sort of, you know, I, I infected Stephen a little bit with, with that particular bug. And then we we just always, you know, we just always loved rosé. We were, we were big fans of, you know, some of the wines that were, you know, early importers as it were into in, into the uk and and we always brought a bottle of rosé to to dinner parties and people sort of looked at us kind of slightly oddly why why we would do that um but um yeah so it was really something that i loved i thought it was a wine that had lots of potential you know it was clear that it was getting better and better as well so, so i think you would have certainly following that region over time you would have noticed that you know the quality of the wines has just improved you know incredibly over the last 15 years, I'd say. Um, and it became more and more wine that, you know, I just thought people are going to love this. It's, you know, it's, it's perfect for our lifestyle now. It works so well with food. It's really underrated, actually, as a, as a, as a nice tipple. And so I sort of said, come on, why, why, why don't we do a rosé? And after, you know, not too long a period, Stephen thought that was maybe not such a bad idea. And Stephen, were you always fully on board uh, the rosé concept? I was a huge wine geek at the time and 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 had all these ideas of making really kind of bizarre wines but then when you know i mean we, we were always rosé drinkers and when you know, when i when i got the bug for rosé i realized actually this is something that people are actually going to drink 
Um, you know, I can make some really kind of wacky wines, but you know, which would be fun to make. But where's the market? Um, we really believe that the rosé market was gonna was was gonna grow. So and and since then, I've actually realised that you know, technically, rosé wine is pretty hard to make. To make good rosé wine, it's it's really really a challenge. So uh, no, I'm really happy we 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 chose that colour wine to make. And just explain why it's so difficult to make then. Well, the thing with rosé is that people are buying it with their eyes as well as their their nose and their palate. So you've got that third dimension, that third sense that you have to appeal to. And to get the, the best out of the wine, but not to get too much colour extraction from the skins, is a very fine balance. So, you know, you need to have really good temperature control. You need to do night harvesting. You know, you need to monitor it so, so carefully. Um, so you want to get as much flavour uh, across from the skins to the juice, uh, you know, pre, pre-fermentation, but you, you don't want to get too much colour. So that's why that extra element of colour is, is so crucial. And how did you go about making your first cuvee? Because clearly you had uh, some wine knowledge, some wine expertise up to a point, but unless I'm very much mistaken, I don't think you'd actually uh, made a wine yourself at that stage, had you? You're not mistaken. We hadn't ever made wine before, and this is another reason why it was a slightly barking mad adventure to do to do this. But um, we managed to to rope into to this adventure. Um, Angela Muir, who is somebody that I knew from my early wine career, who is a master of wine and uh, an outstanding winemaker and and an outstanding blender as well. And she came on board uh, and as a friend. I mean, she she was just amazing. And she really helped us um, decide the, the, the profile um, and, to, and to, blend our first, to blend our first wine, Mirabeau Classic. And are you especially hands-on in the winemaking these days? Well, I'd say, I'd say we, are, we are, you know, more and more, obviously, I mean, you'll come to this anyway, but we've got our own little estate in the meantime. So there we're sort of, you know, fully involved. And, but we also are very, very close to our growers. So we work with, you know, a regular set of the best growers um, in the Cote de Provence region. And um, and so we, we do actually spend quite a fair bit of time with them, you know, and, and, and understand the process as well. And they understand us very well and what we're looking for. So so it's it's you know, it's 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 the, the accent is obviously on the blending in the sense that that is really what we specialize in and in all the, you know, slightly more boring bits uh, that 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 mean you you know the logistics and the and the bottling and the and the design and <laughs> which is actually passion, passionate I'm passionate about the design part but it's uh, but it is really something that you know we, we follow really closely and we get really involved you know we're not just people who sort of own a place and then and then send their people out to to look at things and to tell them what to do you know we do get I mean the the, the blending process takes us about a month in November, I mean, we barely sleep and we, 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 we sort of race around the countrysides to, to, to visit people and to get the best for our cuvées. And it's something that we do personally every year. And I definitely want to come to the branding in a minute, actually, because it's so strong. But on the winemaking, um, you initially, I think, uh, planned to use estate grapes effectively to have your own vineyard. That was the, the sort of plan on the blackboard, I think, wasn't it? But it, it didn't quite happen initially, did it? Well, that's right, and that, that that's where where I think it was, had been useful that I've been in the wine trade before because I spoke to people who knew better than me uh, about this uh, idea, and they were able to to give me some really good advice. I mean, I'm sure you know very well the old adage that you can make a small fortune in the wine trade if you start with a large one, <laughs> um, but we we weren't starting with a large one. We were starting with the proceeds from the sale of our house, 
Um, and we really quickly did the maths on, on that. And, and there's no way we could have we probably even afforded a, any kind of vineyard in Provence. You know, it's, it's a, quite an expensive vineyard area. Um, but part of the research led me to meet a, another master of wine called Matthew Stubbs um, uh, in, in the Languedoc at the time. And he said, Stephen, there are three V's in winemaking, wine viticulture, vinification, et vendre, selling the stuff. And he said, you know, the, you need to kind of lose this obsession about doing it all. You know, you, you know if you, you know, the skill sets are so different um, and so specific in each of those three V's. Um, and, you know, you, 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 you're not a tractor driver. You're more in, in the, you know, you've got a sales background. So we decided to, to kind of slice and dice this a little bit differently and get involved in the second V. So get involved in, in the vinification and the winemaking by you know, talking to our partners about style and so on. But the, we and, and for us to create our own, our own cuvee, our own labels, um, and then for us to build the brand. So we, that's, that's how we ended up deciding to do it in, in the way that we have done. And what a brand you've built. Uh, Mirabeau, incredibly uh, strong, visually so striking. As I said, it's led to this, this family of wines, which we'll come to in a bit. But first of all, um, I'm assuming, Jeannie, this is uh, your end, given your, your background. Um, how did you come up with that brand and that name? Yeah, it, it was it was also a little process. Um, um, but Mirabeau is, uh, is, you know, ubiquitous in in Provence, uh, because uh, the Count of Mirabeau was the MP for, for the for the region um, during just pre revolution. Um, and, um, and there's, you know, as, as, as most people who've ever been to Aix know that Cour Mirabeau is, is the beautiful main street of Aix and, and there are countless fountains and cafes and, uh, and so on, named after this uh, historical figure in France. And uh, we just loved the name. It also means uh, it, it means beautiful view or seeing beauty, which we thought was uh, was a really nice um, thing to apply to a rosé. Um, and um, and and the other big advantage is that everybody can more or less can say it. So apart from the mirror, boo, mirror bow, <laughs> it does happen, um, but is absolutely fine. Um, you know, we felt it was a name that would work in most languages, which is quite important because you know who who hasn't you know had a nice wine and then immediately forgotten what it was called or standing in front of a shelf or or you know being in a restaurant with a menu and you can't pronounce the name we figured that that was actually something that people didn't really enjoy um so it had to be a name that people could um could remember and pronounce easily um and then we came up with this little concept um you know the the, the design on the bottle the drawing on the bottle um that is basically based on a on a vine of life um, we loved, you know, the idea of the sort of, you know, the the, the circular um, way of of life, um, and and the connection to the soil, um, and the five birds that are again classic in 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 a in, in a tree of life um, are on the vine of life, um, and it basically represents us and our children trying to take root in our new um, in our new country and and trying to basically connect with the people and 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 and, and the lovely. The lovely vines that we did find. Well, that Vendre V that Matthew Stubbs was talking about, you really went for that big time because the brand, as I say, is so strong. It looks so good. It follows through the website. It follows through the story that you tell on the website and, and the story that you're 
uh, you're telling now. So um, I'm not surprised it, uh, it, it went well. But I, uh, looking at your story, I, I can't quite believe that you managed to get distribution so quickly because um, I taste all sorts of wonderful wines that are seeking distribution. And it's, it's, it's painful because uh, if people can't buy the wines, I can't really talk about them because there's, there's kind of uh, no point. And yet you seem to have amazing distribution in the UK, certainly, but in 50 different markets. So how did you go about that? Well, I was lucky to get a meeting with the Rosé buyer at Waitrose uh, um, Christmas 2010. Um, a, a guy called Nick Room, who is now, I would say, a, a friend. I mean, he's a, he, he, I, he, I'd never met him before in my life, but I managed to get this meeting with him, and I said to him, I'm going to make great rosé, we're going to make great rosé wine, uh, please list it. And he kind of said, look, why? You know, I, I'm getting approached every day by rosé producers, why should I list your wine? And I, uh, and I said, because we're going to make it fly off the shelves. We, you know, we're going to use social media. We're going to you know, make sure that we, we build a brand that people come and, and, and love and, and we really want to engage with the consumer. And he said, okay, I'll put you on the bottom shelf in 60 stores. And that's where you know, brands are normally exited, <laughs> not introduced. And he said, if you and your social media can work for the bottom shelf, then I'll believe it's going to work. And so he did that and, and, and we got the bottom shelf. And... It worked. You know, we managed to create um, enough interest in, in the brand that people would come in and lean down and pull that wine off the bottom shelf. And then, you know, I think the next year we were in, in, in virtually all of the Waitrose stores uh, at more or less at eye level. So you know, it, it worked. I think we, we delivered for him what he, what he required. And, you know, Waitrose has been a, a fantastic supporter ever since. I think what's what's interesting is is that in a way that we could re- relate really well to to, you know, the average consumer, because, you know, we we were those people. So in lots of ways. And and I think that's why we basically knew that, you know, just just putting your wine on a shelf just isn't enough. You know, people want to kind of live your life in a way and 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 that's what we we set out to do you know to really tell the story to bring people along on our journey lots of different ways you know we did i mean you know when when i look back at it now of course you you sort of cringe at the early attempts to you know to make videos in youtube and um, i mean we had everything to learn but but you know it did sort of it did bring people along and 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 we are still today you know that really approachable brand i mean people can still talk to 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 either of us at any time through lots of lots of different platforms and i think that's often not very wine like you know why i think wine brands are often very remote um and people feel not not connected to them and we really set out with a purpose to kind of not be like that so in addition to that i think it really helped that we had come from the uk into winemaking in france kind of immediately we hadn't been born into a vineyard because you know when you're born into the vineyard then you that's that's your perspective on life whereas our perspective was as a consumer coming to france we were thinking okay why would someone buy wine from us how can we make this brand really really exciting and engaging and so that perspective i think you know was really really helpful um, for us to sort of set the direction for mirabeau it's really interesting that what you've done is link the aspirational element of uh, provence rosé uh, which is undeniably there, you know, the, the idea of the Côte d'Azur and all the rest. And you've linked that with an aspirational brand and an aspirational story. You know, you've you've gone off and you've done something different that a lot of people would, would really envy. So it's very clever the way you've you've linked it, it all to, together, to be honest. Is that 
strategic or is there an element of it just sort of falling together like that? Um, I mean, a lot of it is actually just natural to us. Um, and I mean, to be fair, I think I think a lot of people, you know, in inverted commas, I hope they don't envy us. I hope they watch us with interest because it's it's not really for everyone either. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 one of those things when it actually push comes to shove a lot. A lot of people, you know, they love their life as it is, but they quite enjoy, you know, watching other people, you know, do these kind of go through these adventures and and then in you know what is so great about wine is that then you know in a way the output you can buy it you can enjoy it you know wherever you are um so so it's there's there wasn't a huge master plan but but we always knew that you know we 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 want and we wanted to share our journey and we wanted to bring people along and we wanted to you know to show people you know why we why we do what we do and 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 i guess it's it's been really nice that that we've been able to sort of build that content to you know quite quite a decent level now. I mean, on Instagram, we're probably the leading kind of brand from the area. And, you know, obviously we're up against, you know, billionaires and film stars and, and all sorts. So, so you know, we're, we're sort of trying to punch above our weight as, as normal people running a small business. And it's really nice that these platforms are really quite democratic in a way because, you know, money doesn't, doesn't always do everything. And, and we can talk to our audience um, every day and share, you know, we share a lot of recipes and ideas and decorating ideas. And we try and basically involve them really in much more of a lifestyle aspect. And the wine is just sort of the centerpiece of that. And Brad and Angelina, who own Miraval, are relative neighbours, or certainly their uh, estate isn't very far away, is it? That's right. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's, always, he's always popping around to <laughs> borrow a bowl of sugar. <laughs> no, yes, have a dip in the swimming pool or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, yeah, more recently we've had George Clooney buy a property down there as well. In fact, from friends of ours. So it's yeah, and, and you know, there, there are, yeah, I think it's always been that place where people who've really made it want to live or at least have a place. Uh, and obviously, you know, Brigitte Bardot really helped in the sixties and seventies. You know, with with uh, bringing attention to the Côte d'Azur and Saint Tropez and so on, so it is a it is one of the most beautiful parts of the world. That is completely undeniable. There's now a family of Mirabeau uh, Rosé wines. Um, how do you? We'll come to the new one in a, in a moment. But first of all, how do you go about building a a stable of wines that I'm not going to say they're similar, but because they are different. But it's it's nuanced, isn't it? Uh, well, that's right. I mean, we, we we do actually strongly believe that, you know, within the, the Provence Rosé category, you know, each of, our, each of our wines are really different characters, different styles, um, different family members, if you like. But, um, you know, for the first, in, in the, during the first six years, we only had, we had two wines. Um, so we really took our time in, in trying to you know, get an understanding for the style parameters for winemaking, for, for opportunity, and also listening to the market as well. I think it's very important that we're seeing, you know, what's, you know, what what people want. Um, but you know, as we as the team grew uh, over time, we started to introduce programs to develop new product ideas. So you know, for, so for the first half of our life in Provence, you know, we only had two products, and for the second half, we started to introduce to introduce uh, to introduce more as as time went by. And if you read books about business strategy with really successful businesses, there's always a risk element to expanding too fast, to trying to do too much too quickly. Is that something that has sort of played in your mind as you've been expanding Mirabeau? Yes, it's something, you know, complexity can really kill a business. And, and it's something that we've been very cognizant of since, you know, since the early days, um, which is why we, you know, behind the scenes, we've been developing some of these 
his ideas for years. Um, I and mean, the, the the gin was was years in the making. Our sparkling wine was three years in the making. Um, so yeah, it 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 did take a take take a while. Um, but no, you know, I think the the other thing as well as as a, as a wine brand is we have to think about the the new consumer. We have to think about you know what are the you know, we, you know I'm I'm 57. Um, I went obviously Gene is much much younger than me. Um, <laughs> but but you know I, we we mustn't just make wine from for our own generation. We need to think about you know what are the millennials uh, drinking these days. What are the next generation of Mirabeau drinkers going to be um, attracted to the Mirabeau brand by? So that's why we've, you know, we like to think a little bit ahead, if you like. And Jeannie, uh, you must have seen uh, in the time that you've been there, uh, the market for uh, Provence Rosé change and obviously expand. The figures are incredible. The growth uh, for, for uh, Fan de Provence Rosé is, is astonishing. What do you think has been driving that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. it's incredible how you know we really thought even a couple of years ago that you know the uk market couldn't possibly love rosie anymore but but um, then we realize uh, yes they do and it's 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 fantastic and i think a lot of it is our lifestyle to be honest i think it's you know this very food and outdoors activity focused lifestyle just rosie just lends itself to so many things and and i think you know people have obviously discovered it as a lovely sort of slightly celebratory wine you know you wouldn't a moment where you might not stretch to a bottle of champagne but you you feel like you, you're gonna buy yourself a nice bottle of rosé and have that sort of celebratory occasion um but rosé is equally nice just on a picnic blanket you know you know eating food out of a cardboard box kind of thing um so it is it has that incredible versatility and it just is it's, it's just great for our times and 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 long may it continue of course because you know we think we think this is not just a trend um you know it, we, we really think rosé is is kind of you know finally this sort of third wine color is is beginning to have a life of its own basically which i guess it should you know and it's not a compromise or a sort of you know or a or a diluted red or a or a mix of the two or whatever people might think you know people are beginning to really see it as you know this is actually you know a wine with its own identity and it's a really nice one it's really exciting to see uh, both the improvement in quality over the last couple of decades but also that um, being recognized by the perception of, of rosé changing as well. I can remember when I was uh, in my early 20s, I was allowed to stay at my uncle's flat in Saint-Maxime near Saint-Tropez and, and we'd got, my partner and I would drive off and go to the uh, Cellier de Ramatuel and they had like a petrol pump where you could go with a three litre plastic vessel and you could fill your plastic vessel with this rosé and it was juicy fruited and it wasn't anything like as sophisticated as, as your rosés uh, but it was just a really exciting thing to drink at the time and of course um, the petrol pump's long gone and and the wines are are you know premium wines these days if you look at the the champagne fridges in a, a posh venue then they'll probably be Provence rosé fridges alongside it and that I think is a measure of how much it's it, it, it's changed. Um, did you have any idea this was going to happen when you had your idea on the blackboard? Well, I think we, you know, we, we obviously couldn't have anticipated the extent to which it's become, you know, the third colour. You know, when we left London, it was, you know, it, it, typically a conversation when people would have a, a dinner party or in a restaurant, would be, you know, do you want to drink red or white? 
And now rosé is very much well. Oftentimes, you know, let's start with it. You know, let's get a rosé to start, and then, and then choose later on. And often people stay with stay with a rosé wine. But I think you know, the the um, the growth of popularity in rosé has gone hand in hand with the improvements in in winemaking techniques in in Provence. You know, there's been massive investments um, made by by the growers in Provence, and I think that's really you know been great timing and a, a big big part of the success of of the Provence category. So you know the wines come out of Provence now. I would say are of exceptional quality and 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 quite different from from where they were twenty or thirty years ago when I was first down there. Yeah, well, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. So tell us about uh, Maison Mirabeau La Reserve then. Yeah, so so La Reserve is is actually our first estate wine because a couple of years ago we had basically worked our way up to be able to to buy our own estate, which is obviously kind of, you know, the dream we came to France with finally coming true. Uh, the dream also, which which contains a few, you know, nightmarish moments, because, well, for starters, you have to you have to take a very big mortgage indeed. And then we've had frost two years running in an area which hadn't seen frost for 35 years. But it seems that that is something um, thanks to, you know, climate change that may, may well be much more frequent uh, from now on. Um, so, but we've we've really found our, as, as we say in French, our coup de coeur, you know, we came through the gates and we knew this was this was the one for us, having seen about 40 over, you know, many years. I mean, we, we, we've been looking for about five years. Five years. Um, and, and it was just a great moment. I mean, we, and I guess we were relatively well prepared you know, to handle the adversities that were gonna, that, that inevitably come. So I'm glad we had the time to kind of watch other people do what they do and learn um, and, and, and also gather a really good team around us in order to sort of, you know, get started on our own. So, so La Reserve is a, a very small production from our own vineyard this year. So it's a single estate wine. Um, it's still a blend. It's a blend of Grenache and Sanso and a tiny bit of roll because we're allowed to to blend in a little bit of white wine into our rosés. And, and it's a lovely and aromatic grape, um, which I'm sure you, you like, um, David. Um, mm. And it's uh, yeah, so so we're, we're super proud. And, and also, I think Stephen should, should talk a little bit about the farming because we've almost immediately changed the farming at, at the farm, as we call it. Uh, we, we, we don't really call it the chateau or the domain. We, we changed it immediately as soon as we could. But that's right. So uh, it's, you know, I, th I think it's an exceptional wine and, and we wanted to make the best wine we could regardless of volume. So, you know, we, we could make a lot more than, we, we're making 3000 bottles, which is tiny, uh, tiny production for the size of the estate. So we really wanted to, to hand pick the best to make the best possible expression of the terroir and, and of, of the new domain Mirabeau. But as Junie alluded to there, we, we also, when we bought it, we uh, we immediately converted it to organic or started the conversion to organic because it takes four vintages. But we wanted to go beyond organic. Um, and so we, we're applying a farming practice which is known as regenerative uh, agriculture um, or regenerative viticulture. And we are basically looking to improve biodiversity in the vineyards to treat soil as a living organism and to you know to introduce you know, all year round cover crops to introduce you know we, we've planted you know loads of trees and bushes to you know bring birds bring nature uh, bring we brought bees into the vineyard to really create a a, a wonderful kind of uh, ecosystem that you know represents nature much more than it represents a monoculture of a classic vineyard and that really is what sort of underpins our philosophy of winemaking as well 
I love the fact you have now added the first V as well to uh, those three yes. Vs. Uh, yes. By any measure, you know, you are living the dream, although, you know, I know that it's not as simple as that. And, and when you have a hideous frost, it's more like a nightmare and all the rest of it. But what would your advice be, each of you, uh, individually, uh, to someone who is mulling over doing something similar themselves? Well, it's a very good question because I've got a, a strong view on this, which is that you must share your idea or ideas with people you trust. Because, uh, and, and even if the idea is potentially subject to ridicule it's better to get it out there in the open than to risk getting it horribly wrong um, especially if the costs of getting it wrong are are high so if it's something that you you know that somebody thinks is an idea they could do as a sideline or at the weekends then there's no you know big risk financially or in any other way to to that venture then then that's fine but if you're going to be selling a house taking your children out of school, moving to a country where you don't speak the language, doing something that you haven't ever done before. Um, it's worth listening to your friends and the people you know, who you trust and, and, and you know, listening to what they say because the challenges you're gonna face in real life much more real and uh, potentially uh, dangerous than, than any challenges you're gonna face in the conversation. So you know, talk about the idea because that helps you you know, redefine the idea and refine the idea and, and really, uh, yeah, really focus and, and get the best possible outcome. So that's, you know, talk it through, socialize the idea and, uh, and, and, then, and, and then if it still feels right, then, then go and do it. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I mean, I th and I think the other thing, certainly from our experience, is that, is that, you know, and you will always make your business case uh, or your spreadsheet, you know, in the end, you'll make it fit your desire to do this and 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 you know i think most businesses are launched probably on a on, on a slightly over optimistic view of of what the business is going to do or what's going to happen um you know along the way because we all know what especially having lived through corona we all know that stuff happens and it's, it's often completely unpredictable so so i would just say from a sort of german security point of view just make sure you've got you know enough money to last a bit, little bit of extra time because I'm afraid those figures don't always, you know, hit the little squares in the spreadsheet in the right color. And, um, and you know, and sometimes prices go up and down, you know, something that we've obviously, um, you know, we've obviously experienced in Provence with, you know, the, the region becoming sort of super hot, basically, um, in the sort of desirability stakes. You know, is it, you know, it doesn't always it doesn't always happen as you predict it. And I think if you can sort of just last a little while longer, often success is 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 just around the corner. So so I think you know, give yourself a little bit of extra, extra cushion, an extra layer of fat, and then then I think you'll do better. Perhaps have uh, la reserve uh, in uh, the bank. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. I like what you did there. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Sorry. Yeah, yeah no, it, that, that's very good advice, and actually, um, yeah, m much more useful than just sort of go for it or or whatever. So I'm I'm very grateful to you for. Uh, a really uh, thoughtful um, answer to that question too. And uh, congratulations on the success of the wines. Uh, I showcased some rosé wines, as you know, on uh, this morning on ITV about a month ago. And and uh, Derma O'Leary, your wine is his favourite wine. Uh, so, and he said as much on the telly. So uh, you should be very uh, chuffed about that too. I'm sure you'll continue to have um, you know enormous success with the new wine. 
and I look forward to tasting it. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for taking the time out to join us on The Drinking Hour. It's a really inspiring story. Brilliant. Well, thanks for inviting us on your, on your podcast. Thank you so much. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first selection of medal-winning wines from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And how about some rosé wines from around the world? To Italy first, Chiaretto 2020 Monte del Fra from Azienda Agricola Giovanna Tantini. The rosé version of Bardolino, it's produced on the family estate in the province of Verona and it won a silver medal. The judges saying refreshing acidity and fresh clean fruit, watermelon, raspberry, strawberry, lemon and fruit candy, silky plus creamy mouthfeel with a dry hint of salinity. Next to one of the newish wave of British urban wineries producing some really excellent wines. I'd rather be a rebel Crouch Valley Rosé 2019 from Black Book Winery in Battersea won a bronze medal. Though the winery run by a husband and wife team is in central London, the grapes are about an hour or so away in the Crouch Valley described as England's Napa Valley by Chris Wilson uh, back in episode three of The Drinking Hour, I think. He's a, a big fan and, and Oz Clark made reference a couple of weeks ago too to the Crouch Valley. Uh, the judges said this was juicy fruited with a core of red currants, ripe strawberries and a creamy, elegant finish. Those urban wineries in the UK are, are really uh, worth watching, I think. And here's a, an unusual one to end this trio. Ankira Blush 2020 Cavalcladeri Saraplari. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. This comes from Turkey and it won a silver medal. It's a blend of Kalachik Karasi, Kalakarasi and Syrah. I can say the last one uh, more easily than the other two. Uh, it's from a family owned winery and the judges said, a pleasing and refreshing pretty wine with apple, lemon and berry aromas, creamy mouthfeel, voluptuous, concentrated, dark, juicy berry fruits and a lovely finish. It sounds divine. I just need to get uh, Isabel MS to help me with some of my pronunciations. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now, whether it's the gin boom that keeps on giving, magical mezcal, up-and-coming rum, or the complex world of whiskey, there can be few jobs more exciting right now, or perhaps more challenging, than buying spirits. How do you keep your fingers on the pulse, ahead of the curve, to create a range that satisfies your customers? Well, here on The Drinking Hour, we've already covered wine buying for consumers with Freddie Bulmer at the Wine Society and also for the trade with Rebecca Palmer at Corny and Barrow. We've done beer too last week 
but we're yet to dip our toes into the spirits world. Dave Roberts is the spirits buyer for Virgin Wines. Dave, thank you very much for joining us here on The Drinking Hour. So an obvious first question, I suppose. What trends are you currently seeing in the spirits world? Well, the uh, the obvious place to start is that the gin craze still the gin boom is still very much um still very much alive what we're seeing here is as people have become more educated i suppose around gin is that there's a bit more of a thirst for diversity um there's a bit more um as people understand what gin is more you know they're prepared to experiment a little bit more and um there's definitely a drive and a thirst for sort of like quality within the gin category although um it's a small percent of the overall market in 2020 there was a clear win uh, for tequila with pretty hefty sort of 75 percent growth on year on year um, taking that category up to around 28 million so although you know far beyond the sort of one billion pound industry of gin in the uk it's um, it is growing and the other one i'd like to highlight is is rum i think you know they've everyone's been saying you know is this going to be the year for the rum for the last sort of four or five years and beyond and last year actually saw some really positive signs around the interest and um, the thirst and the and the and the desire for more information and and more more knowledge around rum so that those are those are the kind of the, the trends that i've probably seen and highlight um at the moment so the gin boom is very much still booming it's interesting because what goes up normally goes down but that just doesn't seem to be the case at all yet with gin does it no it really doesn't and i think the thing for me is very much this, the simplicity of making a gin and tonic i think that's really important um you know you all you need is is your gin and some tonic and and a bit of fruit if you that you know if you're that way inclined and some ice of course um, and that's really simple and there's and there's a huge you know it's a very saturated market there's definitely that and obviously gaining traction with a new brand or a new style is not necessarily easy but I think there's still space for innovation and I think and and there's yeah there's plenty of thirst still for for gin and perhaps a bit more thirst towards, you know, going going for premium premiumization within the gin category. And talking of gin, mm-hmm. there's uh, uh, yeah these fruit concoctions, if for want of a better word, <laughs> yeah. are still seemingly really popular, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Gin liqueurs are are still really popular. Again, that highlights, you know, the 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 sweet tooth we might have here in the UK still, because um, they are slightly lower in alcohol and and tend to have a higher sugar content but yeah people people still really are really keen on the gin liqueur category you touched on premiumization there and yeah. you know I've, I've really observed this my, myself people shifting up to higher tiers uh, you can see it in consumer behavior we've seen it uh, during the lockdowns perhaps as some of us have had a bit more certainly more time and and those more fortunate have had a bit more uh, income spare uh, that's yeah. certainly not the case for everyone so is that something you've really observed in the the consumer behavior of the people you're selling to um there's no i i haven't there hasn't been a really clear you know really clear defined push from our consumers for um you know more expensive products but there's we've sold there's no deny there's no doubt that we've sold more more gin i'm just going to stick with gin for a second but you know we've sold more gin at a higher higher rrp in the last sort of six months than we had done previously and the same goes i think for i've put quite a lot of work into our whiskey um range since since you know for the last sort of 
six to eight months and and we've definitely seen an increase in spending in in the whiskey category and that's that's not just scotch that's across the across the whiskey category as a whole you know whether it's japanese or or from or from the us and what about consumers having a go at mixology because i, I know that uh, i have friends uh, during lockdown, who decided they were going to be a bit more daring uh, and try to replicate some of the uh, experiences that they were missing from bars. Have you seen uh, much evidence of that? I have seen some evidence of that, but again, you know, when I referred to before with you know the popularity of gin and a gin and tonic, it's really simple to make. I think it's cocktails that people are making at home are the ones with that have not so many ingredients. Once it gets a bit complicated i think people do get a little bit a little bit scared of, of failing so I've, we've seen <laughs> we've seen negronis obviously become very very you know popular you know in the in bars and whatnot and i think that we've seen a lot of people making that cocktail at home because it's three parts of 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 spirits that are pretty you know pretty easy to have most people will have them at home martinis and things like that so that's my experience of it you mentioned friends have, you, have they been getting creative have they well they've been getting creative but i've uh, tried getting creative myself and I have to say that the art of making a cocktail really is an art because I have come up with stuff that I've thought this would be really lovely and actually it's not greater than the sum of its parts <laughs> whereas you know the, the joy of a, a Negroni as you say is the is the relative simplicity but also it somehow transcends even those magical ingredients that go into it. It's just such a, a fantastic uh, cocktail. But uh, there's a bewildering array of different spirits out there globally. Yeah. How on earth do you go about curating a range? It's, it's a hard one to answer, actually. Um, but I think where I start is is where, where, as a business, you know, Virgin Wines, obviously, we, where we start, you know, quality versus value has to be, you know, comes first above anything else. But... We we pride ourselves on on what our customers tell us um, that they that they enjoy that they like what they don't like and I always use that as a kind of as a as a as a base you know as a starting point for for styles there are certain things obviously that that I don't want to get involved with you know in terms of the really really big brands because 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 I just find that. You know, we're, we'll never be able to to compete compete with you know the multiples in you know in price. So you know, I'm 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 more keen on finding smaller artisanal producers that we can you know that we can work closely with and really offer our consumers you know something a bit different in the marketplace and but also off, you know that represent really great value for money. And talking of uh, those consumers and what they're telling you, are they telling you that they want more? Uh, low and no alcohol we've we've definitely seen a rise in the popularity of that category you know we we were doing very very little low well we had very very few products available to that you know in that category if if you went back 12 months we've now got a fairly fairly extensive range of 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 low no products that that yes sales aren't aren't you know they're not massive for us but i Definitely, you know, there's a huge opportunity within that category. Yeah, it's one that we're keeping an eye on, and it's one that we're very much involved with um, in terms of having stuff available for for those consumers. And yeah, I, I think it could. Well, I think it, it continues to grow. You know, we we definitely want to be a part of that. Yeah, there's real innovation there as well, which I think is uh, incredibly uh, exciting. We were yeah. talking about that uh, on on the show uh, uh, a few weeks ago. Tell us then 
Uh, you must have, I know this is like asking you to choose from your children, but, but <laughs> tell us about some of the, your favourite products in the spirits portfolio. Well, I don't have any children, so that one's, that one's easy. Oh, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, what I'd like to do here is just, just sort of focus on, on some of the, the projects that, we're, that we've been working on. Well, first up, I want to talk about a brand that we've come up with called Festival, which is, um, which is a, gin, a gin range that we, that we have produced. And we've got two SKUs which are in that range at the moment. And we plan to, we plan to increase that up to four. One for each sort of season, really. We released a, a Festival Spiced Orange at Christmas last year, and it went really well. And we We've just released a new a new expression, if you like, which is which is um, focuses on on lemon, and it's called Zesty Lemon. And these are crafted with with a friend who happens to be a master distiller, who's just set up his own um, distillery out in Henley, Jacob, and um, he's a fantastic distiller. And we plan to you know work with him quite closely, very much similar to what we do with wine. You know, highlighting you know exciting winemakers um, to work with to create um, exclusive products. So Festival is one that's really it's close to my heart because it's kind of one of the first projects that we've worked on within spirits and in order to tap into this um, potential rapid growth in the rum range I've just launched a range of four, four rums which um, which are going to come under our own brand called Carina and um, I'm pretty excited about that at the moment actually as well. Great well it sounds like an exciting place to be and I look forward to uh, trying that uh, zesty lemon too it sounds uh, uh, really uh, interesting. Um, Dave thank you very much indeed uh, for telling us about the uh, spirits world here on The Drinking Hour. Absolute pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And it's time now for our final selection of medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC 2021 Hall of Fame. We start with an underrated grape variety that's the perfect pair for Asian cuisine. If you haven't tried Gewürztraminer with uh, uh, Asian food, then you really must. Morrison's The Best Gewürztraminer 2019 comes from Alsace and it won a gold medal with 95 points. The judges said aromas of tart lychee, rich papaya and perfumed rose petal telegraph the flavours of the rounded off-dry palate with hints of smouldering ginger on the finish. A fantastically expressive exemplar of the varietal and a game-changing food pairing. And I couldn't agree more with that tasting note. Uh, try this with a Thai green curry and you'll never drink anything else with a Thai green curry ever again. Next, Agave, Bruno Broglia, Gavi de Gavi, DOCG, won a silver medal. Owned by the Broglia family since 1972, some of the largest land holding in the area with 65 hectares. This was the only white wine served at the G20 banquet for world leaders. The judges said of this one, remarkably intense with the enchanted aromas of quince, apple and sage. Provocative flavours of nectarines, ripe pear and butter ooze off the tongue. Enjoys pleasing depth and a delectable finish. And finally, a rum. This one's from Panama. Mesan Chiriqui rum won a silver medal. Uh, this is distilled in column stills and then aged in ex-bourbon barrels before being transferred to Moscatel barrels. The finished rum is uncoloured, unsweetened, and it isn't chill-filtered. The judges said, easy and unctuous with almond, nutmeg and maple syrup. Vanilla cream and caramel provide a subtle sweetness relaxed and delicious 
And if you want to know more about rum, then next week I shall bring you a special edition of The Drinking Hour, a rum show special with Dawn Davis, MW, who, if you're a regular listener, you may recall us talking about uh, tequila and mezcal. She's a, a brilliant evangelist for spirits. Uh, she comes from the Whiskey Exchange. And then we've got Mitch Wilson of Black Tot Rum. He's a brand ambassador globally for Black Tot. Uh, we'll explore rum's rich history, what makes a great rum, and also what to expect from the rum show later this month as well. So don't miss that. We'll also have some rum recommendations too, of course, from the medal winners at the IWSC in 2021, including a couple of gold outstanding rums, the top category. That's the ones that get 98 points or above. So that's in next week's edition. Do tune in for that. For now, though, thank you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. You can follow me. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And if you liked what you heard today and you're listening on iTunes, do please give us a five star rate, uh, rating because that really helps us uh, with uh, everything. Uh, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.